Before we begin, just giving you an update on our new subscription. It's called David McWilliams Plus on Apple. You just double click, you get no ads, and you get me and John, pure and simple. And Mac, you get early access episodes. Did you know that? Sure. My day is made. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. I hope you're still reveling in the marvels of 1970s Italian disco. Seems to have been a podcast you! responded extremely well to. I myself have been indulging again the Raffaella Cara back catalog. As an Italian friend of mine said, she's our Madonna, but she was a lot hotter, a lot more attitude and a lot riskier. And it is actually true. If you actually go back and you look at what she was saying about sex, about liberation, about equality, about women's rights, all that stuff, all through the 70s and 80s, this diminutive performer was changing the way Italians thought about themselves. So again, we will go back to it because I know- She certainly changed you, Mark, with your jumpsuit there. I'm really liking that jumpsuit. Well, it's a a particularly uh, tight jumpsuit, John. And silky. It's silky. (laughs) It's, it's, It's a bit revealing. It's got a- it's got a Saturday Night Fever sense to it, okay? Yeah. It's a cross yeah. between Saturday Night Fever and I Feel Love. And the medallion goes well with it, Mike. The medallion goes extremely well. Just call me Giuseppe. <laughs> Actually, I Feel Love, John, was released on the final week of July, so we are in a momentous week. Wow. That's another story that I don't know if we've told on the podcast. We might come back to it. The Georgie yeah. Moroder, David Bowie, Brian Eno story, all about uh, I Feel Love, which again, a classic. But has its roots, has its roots in Adriano Celentano's Italian disco in the 1970s. So yeah, it was a humdinger, I have to say. We may well come back to Italian discos. We'll certainly come back to Italian politics because it- Italy is a crucial, crucial member of the European Union. And more importantly, it is the weakest link in the chain in the bond market, which if the winter of discontent that is forecast in Germany is anything to go by, we may well be back at some sort of crisis in the Eurozone prompted by Italy. But enough of that, carry on. How are you, Ed? I'm good. I'm good. Of course, you know the news, the big news of the week, Mac. What is it? The fact that and I, there, there's an element of bragging here, which I'm always a little bit uncomfortable with, but what the hell? Right, I'm going to brag anyway. <laughs> so we got three nominations in the Irish Podcast Awards for oh, Best gosh. Business, Best Current Affairs and a Spotlight Award, which is brilliant. Really? Yes. Now, here's the other thing, though. 
There's also a listener's I'm choice. Always, can I also say, I'm always worried about awards, right? I think they're a, they're a massive sell indicator, right? The more awards you win, the more the more your stock is at a peak. So yeah. let's let's just put that in the back in the backside. Anyway, go on, go for it. There's a listener's yeah. award, is there? So there's a li- there's a listener's choice award as well, which requires listeners obviously to vote. So I would implore all our listeners to can vote we not just for- pay them? <laughs> we could do that too, <laughs> exactly. but I don't have the money to do that. <laughs> go on. What's the so, website? What what where where do they? So yeah, the website. If you want to uh, vote for us, which we'd love you to, the website is the Irish Podcast Awards.ie forward slash vote. And by the way, just a, a little note, when you do vote for us, they send you an email and then you just confirm your vote by email. That's a really important part of it. But so there you go. So it, we'll have a night out, Mark. We'll, have a, we'll definitely have a night out. And I promise to wear my Andy Gibb Bee Gees jumpsuit. You remember, that, you remember that Staying Alive video? Do you ever remember the stag ad in the early 80s? Yes, the backdrop, was, yeah. the backdrop was Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. And they were wearing flares that you could hide a six-pack up. <laughs> the, these really tight jumpsuits with flares, that's going to be my look of choice at the podcast awards, okay? Excellent. Whenever they're on. Are, are you going to wear, do you remember, do you remember we used to wear Chris's as well instead of oh, belts? Oh, you've got to wear a Chris, man. That's, that, was into your, that was your Dylan obsessive days of Dylan and the Chris. Yeah, the I love that. The less said about Bob Dylan, the better. The more <laughs> said about disco, the better. Anyway, what else is rocking your world at? Diffle a bit now. There's loads going on. I mean, I suppose the other big news of the week was we lost a great orange man to the great orange god in the sky, David, David Trimble. Trimble. Actually, you know, David he was a good Trimble. guy. At, at, at all in all, he was. He, uh, he was actually an amazing politician. Anybody who can bring the unionist tribe, and he did, bring them along a journey that they didn't really want to go to. He spoke truth to power in the sense he said, "Listen." We don't run this society anymore. We've got to change. And the extraordinary thing about Trimble was that he was, like all unionists, condemned by the very fact that when a unionist, and it's still the case today, when any unionist suggests an accommodation with nationalism or an accommodation with the South or a change in the position of the union or anything like that really reflects the facts on the ground, they're accused of being Lundy. Do you know who Lundy was, John? No, ah, this is a great one. This is a great one. This is this is what happens when you're when you're married into that that crowd, right? <laughs> Lundy was a geezer, right? The siege of Derry. Go back to the siege of Derry. This is yeah. this is what they're. This is this is iconic stuff for the unionists, right? The siege of Derry. King James, yeah. his army is besieging Derry. Inside Derry, there are the Apprentice Boys, a yeah. bunch of yeah. loyalists, right? Yeah, with now, their drums. Lundy, with their drums, okay all around an area called the fountain inside the walls of Derry. Okay. This yeah. is part of, this is part of unionist iconography. Okay. And a unionist called Lundy decides, look, the game is up. Why don't we just open the gates to the Catholic army, to King James's army, right? And basically surrender. So Lundy goes to open the gates. And of course the apprentice boys slam the gates shut and call him a traitor. Okay. Traitor. And now, now to be a Lundy in unionist iconography is to be an insider, i.e. a unionist who betrays the tribe by doing a deal with the outsiders, right? Right. So it's the worst thing you can be called in unionist slang and unionist, well, it's the worst insult that a unionist can throw another one to be called a Lundy. And of course, Trimble 
was called a Lundy by Paisley almost every day between 1996, 97, 98. And of course, after he signed the agreement, but particularly after he signed the agreement. And what made Trimble really interesting was that he understood that this is the deal that had to be done. He had to bring his tribe with him. And the fascinating thing is that Paisley so undermined Trimble that at the end, Trimble lost his seat to the DUP in Upper Ban, which is a pretty unionist neck of the woods, right? And what does Paisley do the minute he gets into power? He sits down with Sinn Féin, ends up the Chuckle Brothers, does a deal with with Martin McGuinness, and ends up... So basically, what you have is Trimble did all the heavy lifting, did all the hard work. But because Trimble was essentially quite an unpleasant character, right? What Mm. people only saw was his unpleasant... I'll tell you a story about Trimble, right? I'll tell you the the story. The day David Trimble told me to fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Go on, yeah. It's the truth, right? I was presenting... It wouldn't have uh, been the first or last. No, I wasn't. But I was presenting Agenda uh, on TV3 and I was doing some business, I can't remember what it was, or some some interviews in London. And Mm. I was flying back to Shan, to Belfast, not to Dublin. So I went on the part of Heathrow, which is a part really... All excluded for regional flights in the UK. And of course, yeah. the Belfast yeah. flight is on it, right? So you go down, you walk for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. And then I think it's British Midland is the, was the airline of choice, right? So I'm sitting in the lounge, not in the business lounge, just in the general lounge. And sitting up me is David Trimble. He comes mm-hmm. in with one of his advisors and they're, they're looking over these papers. And because Agenda, because basically Agenda was a show that I was running and we basically had to have a neck like a jockey's bollocks in order to get people to appear in it. Because it was TV3 yeah. at midday. So we'd always pretend we were RT. Were, were you on your own or, do you, or did you have a crew with you? I was on my day? Todd. I was on my right, Todd, okay. right? I was okay. just, you know, my Todd. And so I see Trimble and he's straight opposite me. And uh, there's lots, lots of people around. This is the slightly embarrassing thing uh, because he was a man who didn't get embarrassed by his own obnoxiousness. And I went over to him and I said, hi, how are you doing? My name's Dave McWilliams. I present a show down to Dublin. And, you know, I'd really love to have you on the show. And he looked up for his notes and he says, do you ever fuck off? I went right back. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, that was it. <laughs> and you just shuffled and, away. And I shuffled and bar- humiliated away. <laughs> Did you ever get to interview him though? No, no, I didn't. He, uh, that was the type of person he was. Like he was not clubbable not in any way outgoing, not in any way warm, not in yeah. any way friendly. Yeah. He was unionist. Maybe, <laughs> but no, but maybe he needed that type of personality uh, in order to possibly disguise the fact that he was under so much pressure all the time that he didn't really have time. I mean, yeah. he was trying to bring, you know, and if you see what happened to him, you know, the, if you look at clips of him going to those kind of unionist orange halls and Tyrone and Fermanagh, and sitting down with the farmers and basically saying, look, you've got to cut a deal with your neighbors. Yeah. And the farmers saying, I'll never cut a deal with those people, you know, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he took a lot of flack. So I think... But he was also in the at the in the front of the, the march down the Garvahi Road. He was. confronting the, the cops. He was. And quite an iconic piece of uh, footage, actually. Yeah, and I think that most nationalists probably thought that his little jig at the end of the Garvahi Road himself and Paisley was probably suggestive of a dyed-in-the-wool sectarian unionist. But in actual fact, it's clear that he was a much more complicated person, much more complex. And unionism could do, as I've always said, unionism needs a declerk. And 
in a way, Trimble was their de Klerk. And they, they now need a de Klerk for the 21st century. Yeah. They need another yeah, Trimble. Yeah. Somebody, and that doesn't mean that the union is over, but somebody to bring them forward, not constantly bringing them backwards. They need yes. that big personality. And if that personality is obnoxious and is quite happy to tell TV presenters to fuck off, well, so be it. Because <laughs> in the overall pantheon of things, far more important that you sign the Belfast Agreement than you actually do a TV show. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Especially so, talking to you. Especially talking to me. Sure, imagine him on this podcast. Imagine, imagine him doing Italian disco. <laughs> Anyway, what are we talking about this week? Let's get on to some economics. We're talking about exchange rate pegging, John. Right. Okay. Talk to me about pegging or exchange rate pegging. I'll come back to that in a while because it's it's a very interesting part of today's discussion. Do you know what I want to talk about today, right? That's the exchange rate side of today's discussion. What I want to talk about today is something Pegging side. The pegging side. Yes, exactly. And do you know what the actual peg was called? The ERM? The exchange rate mechanism, it was actually called the snake in the tunnel. So there you go. <laughs> this is our last reference to the future king of England and his uh, picadillos and his uh, various little implements that he apparently uses when he's not with his missus. Right. Let's move but, on. <laughs> anyway, what I want to talk about is the following. Last week, I read chart. Now, you know, I've got a weakness for charts. And it was basically a chart about the size of Chinese manufacturing in the world. And I was talking about the fact that what has happened since China emerged, now we go back to this 30-year story of the emergence of China and the change yeah. in the global economy since the end of the Berlin Wall. Now, what I, what I was talking about was the profound dislocative impact of China on the rest of the world. And as the huge amount of manufacturing went to China, Loads and loads of countries became politically, economically, and financially much less stable. And politically, you see that in the rise of right-wing populist parties, uh, because the old blue-collar industrial working class has seen its jobs going to China. And yeah. Financially, you see this in a variety of exchange rate crises. That's why I was going to talk to you about pegging the exchange rate. Because basically what happens is if you don't have an industrial base, a manufacturing base, you then largely are guaranteed to have a trade deficit that demands a current account surplus to try and make your books balance. And that ultimately yeah. means that you become heavily financialized. So in an economic and on a political basis, the role of China has been phenomenal, except for one country. Except yeah. for one country, and that country is Ireland. So the fascinating story of the last 30 years in Ireland has been the extraordinary growth in the manufacturing side of the Irish economy, which is almost unheard of in any European country with the exception of Germany. So you'd never really right. put us together with the Germans. And that's what I want to talk about. It's the essential nature of why countries need to make stuff why countries need to make stuff, why countries need manufacturing bases, and why I give you a statistic, right? And this is the yep. one that struck me last time when I was reading that chart, and this is the basis of our podcast. Irish manufacturing output is now 123 billion euros a year. Yeah. Let's just take our close comparative with Britain. Britain's manufacturing output is... 253 billion per year. So Ireland's manufacturing output is half of Britain's, 
Yet Britain has a population between 13 and 14 times greater. Yes. Number one. Yeah, yeah. And Britain has an industrial heritage going back hundreds of years. I mean, made in Britain was a thing, right? Yeah. I'm not just until Thatcher came along. I'm not just singling out Britain. I'm talking about most European countries, right? The United States, for example, in 1979 had 20 million manufacturing jobs. It has 12 million now, right? So big, big manufacturing countries have seen their manufacturing base slaughtered. Yet this tiny little country, Ireland, has seen its manufacturing base go through the roof. I'll give you another statistic, that Ireland has 1% of Europe's population. We produce 5% of all manufacturing goods in the European Union. So then the question is, and it probably comes back to a lot of people, some people ask you know, sometimes, you know, could Scotland go independent and is independence important? Mm. The question then is, how did we do this? Because it's a story, I don't want to crow from the bra- brag, right? But it is. Yeah, it's our it's second bragging of the podcast. Our, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually either vote for us and the manufacturing base. But <laughs> what it does do to you, John, is it says, how did this happen? This is actually a phenomenally interesting story. Now, what happens typically in Ireland when you talk about manufacturing and industrial production, the debate usually centers on multinationals. Will they stay? Will they go? We take yes. too much tax from them. The tax base is too narrow. Clearly, these are all very, very valid, valid criticisms, yeah. right? We're a the, bit scared of them, aren't we? Well, I think the, the solution to a narrow tax base is broaden it. How you broaden your tax base is you tax land. Right, that's so obvious to me. So the right. idea of a broad tax base means is you take a little bit from loads and loads of places, so that you're not exposed to a downturn in any one particular place. Right. So that's yeah. a broad tax base. A narrow tax base, of course, is you're taking small amount from a tiny amount of the economy, which is growing very, very quickly. And if that tips over, you've got a tax problem. So yeah. obviously, the solution to a broadening tax base isn't not to take tax from the place that's actually growing, but it's to take tax also from other places. So you actually spread it all around. But I think there is a phenomenal, phenomenal story to be told here on on Ireland's manufacturing industry. At the moment, lots and lots of people say, oh yeah, but it's a mirage, it's going to leave. It's some sort of unfaithful cuckoo in the nest that's about to fly. But the interesting thing is that the manufacturing sector is getting stronger and stronger every year. And then other people say, ah, it's just tax driven and it's a back office for multinationals. That may well be the case in some cases, John. But what it does is it makes us think about just how hard it is to build a manufacturing base from scratch at a time when Asia is so dominant. The only two countries that have built a manufacturing base from scratch in the last 30 years are really Korea and China. And the third one is Ireland. Right? And Korea and China have their own story. But what Ireland has done is it's acquired a manufacturing base. We haven't built it, we've acquired it by changing our relative prices through our tax system, which is a strategy that was open to every other country in the world. But we really got it right. Okay. Some tried, some didn't. Right. And now that the OECD and Ireland are committed with 140 other countries to this new minimum tax regime of 15%, Ireland's no longer an outlier. It's no longer this sort of slightly dodgy tax haven, it's there. And what we have now, what we have now is what I would call first mover advantage, that now that the playing field has been leveled, we have what they call in economics, a cluster effect, John. And the cluster effect is really essential. What, what do you mean the cluster effect? What, what, what is that exactly? 
Well, what you see, uh, it comes, I think, from Peter Drucker, or one of those sort of MBA oh, yeah. heads yeah. who talked about uh, how companies behave. What we notice, take, for example, Silicon Valley, right? Mm. Silicon Valley attracts in most capital, the best companies, the best people because it's Silicon Valley. So companies tend to cluster around areas of success. So a good example, we were talking about David Trimble earlier on, was Northern Ireland at the turn of the 20th century. There was a clustering effect around the linen mills, around the shipyards, around Dunlops, all those companies. So basically what you had is that companies tend to go to areas where other companies are. Silicon Valley is a great example of that. Ireland is now a great example of clustering. So basically every new investment begets more investment simply because every new investment is a thumbs up from somebody else that this is a good place to locate. And what you tend to do is you tend to get amplification effects in clustering, which means that it's very, very hard to get involved in this business now. If you're a country that hasn't really got involved in the business, right? So let's say if you're a Central European country, a Southern European country, or, you know, a Latin American country, et cetera, if you want to start copying the Irish model of acquiring a manufacturing base, it's much harder now because we have this first mover advantage. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, you know, and it's, it's not just the IDA, it's not just the tax, it's been members of the European Union, it's been members of the Euro, it's been members of the OECD, it's been open to trade, it's been members of all those with the GATT, all these sort of things that you would say in parenthesis are globalization. The globalization yeah. has been unbelievably productive for Ireland because Ireland has been unbelievably aggressive in going out and acquiring the upside of globalization. So yeah. that's where we are. It's a it's a, it's a fascinating story. Now, people just talk about the tax all the time, which we can talk about in a minute, John. Yeah. But I think the most substantial story is the actual size of the manufacturing base and its modernity. I suppose yeah. that when, when you have clustering as well, not only are you attracting in the investment and the multinationals, but that gives rise to all the support industries, the local support industries. That Precisely. Um, it's a whole ecosystem that, that evolves. It's a, you're absolutely right. It's an ecosystem. So, for example, people go and work for a large multinational initially. They get well paid. They learn the ropes. They develop networks. They create their own networks. They understand how the work is done. And then, as happens in most people's career, many people's careers, they kind of have maybe sometimes in their 30s or 40s say, I might go out on my own. I might yeah. actually supply to this multinational a product that it needs, that it's locating or sourcing elsewhere. And that's the sort of virtuous signal where you get you know, not tens of thousands of jobs in manufacturing, but hundreds of thousands of jobs, as is the case now. And that's a real story. And that's the prize of sovereignty. You know, again, when I go back, we talked about Trimble again, you know, one of the problems in Northern Ireland is it doesn't have the ability to make its own mistakes when it comes to economics. Making your own mistakes is very important. It doesn't have the ability to actually change its tax system to change its education system, to sit down and talk to companies in a real manifest way, because it's part of the UK, so it has to always genuflect to London. So what we did was to generate yeah. our own manufacturing base. What happens in countries like country like Northern Ireland or Scotland or Wales or lots and lots of other sort of regions of bigger countries is that without that autonomy, those regions tend to go into decline and become unbelievably dependent on the centre. 
And once you become independent on the center, your politics changes from a can-do, let's do this type of politics, to let's see how much money we can swindle out of the uh, coffers of the central government. And then you become dependent. So there's a whole host of other extenuating factors and attendant factors. But I, I think that the example in Ireland is, is really quite fascinating. Now, we'll talk about tax in a second, but I still think let's just talk about jobs. Yeah, let's do that just after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So, Michael, we, we've kind of done very well out of this over the last 30 years, where we've attracted in all these companies and all this investment, and it's worked really well for us. And we've got full employment, all that kind of stuff. But there's stuff that we need to do to keep this going. Yes. What else is going on in this? Well, I I suppose what the Irish example is, it's it's a hopeful example for other countries, you know, that you can acquire an industrial base by using your tax system, by changing your education system, all that sort of stuff. And I'll just give you a few figures, right? Now, corporation tax accounts for 22% of all Irish tax take. That's 15.3 billion right? Which is a huge yeah. amount of money. Just to give you an example, 15.3 billion in a society of 5 million citizens is three grand per citizen per year in revenue. And like this money is real. It flows into the exchequer. It then flows out in education in health and welfare spending, etc. cetera. Not in housing. And yeah. Well, it could do in housing. It could do in housing, right? It's a lot of money, right? And you know, people say, well, will it increase or will it decrease? I'm not sure. It could increase as much as it could decrease. You know, the trend argues for cautious optimism that basically what is happening is we are capturing a little percentage of a global game and that makes a huge difference in a little country, right? But as it rises, so I'll give you another statistic, right? Yeah. That that uh, 15 billion, right, was only 7 billion in 2016, 17. So in a five or six year period, the tax takes from corporation taxes doubled, right? Yeah. Now, there is an argument to say, hold on a second, why don't we use that? 
Now, the way the state is using it is they're trying to put it into this thing called a rainy day fund. Now, the rainy day fund is they're putting, I think, about five or 600 million a year into this fund, which is basically to plug a hole in the national accounts if we're in a recession. And I think that is a very narrow, narrow way of looking at the power of money. That, it's almost like the rainy day fund almost sounds like, um, you know, a household budgety kind of thing You're to do. Absolutely opposed, right, John. As You're opposed absolutely to right. again, it's again, this is the tyranny of bad accountancy, right? That basically the Department yeah. of Finance think like accountants. They don't think like economists. And because they think like accountants, everything has got to do with the balance sheet, the budget deficit, right? So what they're thinking is, if we're doing well now, what we do is we put the money into a fund and we use that fund to plug a hole in the budget deficit when and if the economy goes into recession, taxes fall, revenues rise, and we need to raise more money. Mm. I think that's a really, really dumb way of operating a windfall like this. I think a much more clever way is to actually put together a wealth fund and say to Irish people, you now have a recurring wealth fund of, let's say it's half, I might say, let's say it's even a thousand euros per year, right? Per person, right? And over years and years, you let that accrue. And as it accrues, that figure will increase quite dramatically. Now, what will that do is that what the Department of Finance don't understand is the actual power of money, that money is an energy. Wealth is an energy. Yes. Because money releases human ambition and motivation. And that is the energy of the economy. That's the dynamism. That's what propels us forward. That's what causes us to take risks, innovation, new products, all that sort of stuff. So if we were to have a wealth fund based on ongoing take of the multinational windfall into a wealth fund, and you pledge that for each citizen, very, very soon, every man, woman, and child in this country would have a savings account with money in it, like a wealth account, right? Yeah. Now, what you could do then is you could pledge that as collateral against startups because the whole key for a society is to generate an innovative society, right? We can't get rich with a society of public servants, although they're important in a certain area. What actually makes the economy rich is innovation. And what actually makes innovation is coming up with new ways of doing things. And what com comes up with new ways of doing things is startup companies. And of course, the problem with startup companies is they're always risky because inherently they fail, right? But yes. if you could de-risk startup companies by pledging the resources of this wealth fund to the banks who used to or will be in the future, the people who finance startup companies, totally, totally de-risk the idea. And what you're saying to the banks is, if this fails, you can have my 10 grand that is sitting in the wealth fund. So suddenly you make liquid people's liabilities and you change profoundly the entrepreneurial psyche of the country. So this is a, a little bit like the Norwegian model of the, their oil wealth fund. It's, it's the same idea, except the Norwegians, again, are not using this wealth fund. The Norwegians are, what they're doing is basically saying, we're going to get rich for future generations and we're going to pay the pensions of Norwegians for the next 300 and I think it's 53 years. Okay. Yeah, something mad like something that. Mad like that. Yeah. But paying the pensions of people is rewarding people for getting old, right? What we should be doing is rewarding people when they're young, right? Because yeah. that's when people need well, youth is wasted on the young, as they say. It's wasted on the youth. Uh, and we uh, don't we know that as we get old, John? Yeah, but I mean, 
<laughs> right? All the things I should have done. Exactly, exactly. Like pegging. Um, <laughs> so I come back to this idea, John, right? I come back to this idea that, you know, the wealth fund is there. It's a simple idea. It's not a complicated idea. It's directed as an, at an entrepreneurial society, which is the sort of society you have to create to innovate and to stay ahead of the game. We could do that. The other thing that could be quite beneficial, maybe hugely, is if you are creating wealth for people through a wealth fund, then it takes a lot of the heavy lifting off the housing market to be the main dynamo of personal wealth in a country. One of the reasons that the housing market is so screwed here is because people regard housing rightly as part of their personal wealth. So therefore, the minute you buy a house, you want house prices to rise, whereas the minute before you bought a house, you want house prices to fall. Yeah. So there's yeah. always going to be this inbuilt social dynamic that wants house prices to rise because of the wealth effect, right? But if we were to create a wealth fund, it would take a little bit of that upward momentum away from house prices because people generate wealth elsewhere. So, I mean, it's this idea that you have to try and figure out a tax system, a housing market, a multinational system, where the nexus of which is good for everyone. And it seems to me that this is an obvious yeah. way. And what we're not looking at our manufacturing base in this way. We're just looking at it as a thing that happened because of multinationals. We're not actually saying, well, what else could we do with it? Well, you see, the, the thing is that I think it's a brilliant idea. And I've always thought, because we, we have spoken about this before, but the on the flip side, though, the, the impediment to maintaining a good, strong manufacturing base and new innovation, new startups and all the rest, is we also need a really good and upgrade our infrastructure. I'm talking okay. about infrastructure in terms of broadband. I'm talking about in terms of roads, transport, and even education. You look, you're, look, you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, the one thing that the having hundreds of thousands of well-paid jobs in manufacturing where people are acquiring skills because the manufacturing base has been acquired from a high-tech area such as mm. American multinationals, right? Yeah. Is that people's sense of themselves increases, their sense of security increases. And politically what that means is you don't tend to get the Brexit-type votes, the Trump-type votes, because, you know, as we know, the Brexit and Trump sort of stuff are because of the people who are left behind. Now, what were they left behind from? They were left behind from good manufacturing jobs in the main, right? So the social ballast of this is essential. But you're absolutely right. If we want to maintain this social ballast, right, and maintain these many hundreds of thousands of jobs, right, and maintain the fact, I mean, I'll, let me just give you a couple of, of stats here, John. If we want to maintain, yep. for example, right, Employment in high-tech manufacturing as a share of total employment in Ireland is the highest in the EU, 29%. Manufacturing in general accounts for 12% of the economy, employment-wise, again, very, very high. It's 12.5 billion in wages and income tax annually, right? And mm. it's 1.7 billion in other tangible investments. That's the ones you were talking about, other Irish companies kind of feeding into the multinationals, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just think, you know, within Europe, this industrial base in Ireland has transformed ourselves. We're now the second largest exporter of medical devices, the second largest exporter of pharmaceuticals, the largest exporter of dairy products. You know, 60% of all our final manufactured exports are now part of global supply chains. So what you're doing is you're really plugged into the economy. But in order to maintain all this, you're absolutely right. You've got to get 
your infrastructure right. You can't have a city like Dublin, Cork, jammed up every day with traffic jams. You've got to have metro systems. You've got to have public parks. You've got to have housing that is affordable and isn't extracting a huge amount of that take-home income that we've just been saying is a good thing. You've got to have an education system that adjusts and adapts constantly because the education system is the bedrock and it's all very well providing a workforce at a certain stage for a type of industry. But now what you do is you've got to provide a highly flexible, highly adaptable, highly Absolutely. educated workforce, yeah. which means lifelong work education. Right? The sort of stuff we do on the podcast, you know, learn economics later in life. You don't have to basically supercharge all your acquisition of knowledge between the age of 14 and 22. I mean, this is a bonkers idea. And then you leave university at 22 or 23 and you never open a book again or you never do a course again. This is a crazy idea. We've got to invest in lifelong education so that the workforce is unbelievably self-confident. Yeah. Like they can go out and do its things. So Then we need a, a good housing stock so they'll stay and they won't We need a good housing too. stock so they'll stay so that basically, you know, what we will find is A, they won't feck off somewhere else and B, our own kids will say, I'm not going to go and live somewhere else because I can't afford a house, they'll say, do you know what? I'm going to go, I'm going to set up, I'm going to back myself in Ireland, I'm going to work yep. here. Yep. And, you know, we'll see how it goes. I mean, I always think that traveling is great and I would never have an impediment to anybody to travel. But ultimately, a society has to create its own internal dynamic. Ireland has done that. So the question then is, John, the last 30 years we've done extremely well, got lucky in certain areas policy was good in certain areas. The overall outcome has been a phenomenal transformation of the economy. The next 30 years, you're absolutely right. Housing, infrastructure, education, they're the only three things that will sustain this. And that means getting our house in order and making sure our politics works. That means getting our planning system to work. That means getting our finance to work and ultimately getting our economy to work. We're almost halfway there and I think we can do it. And just before you go, we've started a new weekly Q&A exclusive for our Patreon supporters. Here's a clip from one of this week's questions. Supply side reforms has been the nirvana of every neoliberal since Ronald Ray. The idea here was that everything in the economy, all the problems of the economy can be reduced to inefficiencies on the supply side. So for example, if you had very high levels of unemployment, what the answer to that was to reduce employment regulation, reduce unemployment benefit, and to expand the supply of labor by really terrorizing the supply of labor. It's very Thatcherite. It also didn't really work. But now after 40 years of supply side reform, there's very, very little in the UK that you can further eke out of the supply side, but they haven't done. So they've done privatization, they've done denationalization, they've done very, very low levels of bureaucracy and red tape. They've done feckin' Brexit, which is the ultimate supply side reform because that would make them the sort of Singapore and the Thames idea. So I think that Liz Trust is basically playing not to an economic orchestra or chorus but simply to the bandwagon of right-wingers in the UK who believe in this sort of voodoo economics of supply-side reforms. What it does really mean is it's going to make poor people poorer and it's going to make rich people richer. 
So if you have any questions or queries, and if you like what you hear and would like to join the gang on Patreon, where you can ask questions of Mac, along with lots of other stuff, like two full macroeconomics courses with notes and reading lists and all that kind of good stuff, then join us on patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. Talk to you next week. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.